0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm chapter 1. We are going to be starting a series on the Psalms, the, uh, our summer series. Uh, Pastor Tyler put together the graphics. I said I should have wore a Hawaiian shirt today. Um, Instead, I wore a picnic table. Um, So (laughs) so, be it as it will. Um, But uh, before we get into the Psalms, uh, I just want you to uh, see something that we've put together for you. Uh, The pastors, we want to challenge you as a church, they're at the Welcome Center, to read through the entire Psalter this summer, 10 weeks of this series. We're going to take this series into two weeks of September um, because where we were ending in 1 Corinthians. It just made sense to end off where we did last week. But uh, uh, we're going to read through the entire Psalter as a church. Now, because space was limited, each of these are broken down by five days. So Monday to Friday. So not seven days. There is some chunks of reading there, but you'll notice by the dates that they're broken up and you have a break on the weekends. But uh, let's commit together as a church, amen, to read through the book of Psalms together, to be encouraged by God's uh, words that he has put to poetry through his authors. It will be a wonderful time. So please grab one of these on your way out. Uh, And if they're all gone, we can always print more. We love to print here. Norman hates it, but we love it. No, I'm kidding. He's not even in here. Where is he? Uh, But uh, so please grab one. It will be a wonderful time of reading. You can memorize if you'd like, um, and it will just be a great time in God's book. But uh, we are in the wonderful. Psalm 1 today. I did preach Psalm 1 about three years ago at the church, but we're going to be looking at it from a little bit different of a light today. But Psalm 1 and next week's Psalm 2, we're going to be looking at both of those back to back because Psalm 1 and 2 set the stage for the entire Psalter. After those first two Psalms, we're just going to kind of, I'm just going to flip my Bible open one day and whatever one opens up to, we're reading, no, I'm kidding, no. I've, I've, I've planned out which ones the Lord has laid upon our heart, my heart for this church, and we will be going through just random Psalms throughout uh, uh, the Psalter this summer, but we're going to start in sequence with one and two. But why the Psalms, though, you might be wondering, why are we looking at the Psalms? Well, the Psalms are one of the most dearly loved books in the Bible. For generations, they have been the greatest treasure to God's people. Most of the Psalms, just for your knowledge, were written for Israel's temple worship. They were the worship book of Israel. We know this because 55 of the 150 Psalms are dedicated to the director of music. Several more are written for specific parts of temple worship, and 24 are connected with temple musicians like the sons of Korah. The Psalms reflect... The prayer and praise of ancient Israel. In the New Testament, it's filled with the Psalms. Jesus probably, this is speculation, but probably sang Psalms 118 with his disciples after the upper room before they were going to the Mount of Olives in Matthew 26.30. When Peter and John were arrested, the early church prayed the words of Psalm 2 in Acts 4.25. Paul leaned heavily on the Psalms as he wrote the book of Romans. Paul also commands us, right, to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in what? Who knows? Psalms. Yeah, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in Ephesians 5.18. The Psalms were the heart and the spiritual pulse and life of the early church. They were also prominent in the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Before Martin Luther nailed his 95 c- thesis, wow, thesis to the church, uh, Castle Church Durham, Wittenberg, Germany, he lectured on the Psalms for over two years, and he had an intense Christ-centered focus in his proclamation of the Psalms that helped forge, most scholars say, his doctrine of the Reformation. The Psalms were also a key part of development of Protestant worship, our worship. As the reformers moved away from the Latin mass, they introduced something called congregational singing, which by the way, you guys sounded beautiful today. Congregation, hearing each other singing the praises of the Lord. And in large, in the early, in the 1500s, these were put to metrical psalms. The psalms were so important to the Protestant worship that the first book ever printed in North America was the Bay Psalm book in 1644. So we owe much of our psalms, or sorry, much of our worship and our theology as Protestants, to the book of Psalms. We treasure the psalms in our day too. Many of our favorite psalms that we sing, many songs, sorry, many of our favorite hymns that we sing, are portions of the psalms, or at least paraphrases of them. We go to the psalms when we're laughing. When we're crying, amazingly often they fill us with a vocabulary that we wouldn't be able to find on our own. I call it the language of heaven when we're facing grief, when we're facing hurt, and even when we're facing good times. So it's exciting as a church that we open the book of Psalms together. Charles Spurgeon rightly called his commentary on the Psalms the treasury of David. That's such a great in fitting title, because God's word is to be more desired than gold and even much fine gold. So, we are opening today a treasure chest, a treasure chamber in our hearts. And if our hearts are open to God's spirit in this focused time on the Psalms, He will change us. We will learn to pray as the psalmist prays, we will learn to praise and worship with God as David did. The Psalms are as deep as the ocean and they're as wide as the human experience. They can take us and carry us to the deepest lows and to the greatest heights. It will meet you right where you are and God will give you language to speak. So as we go to the Psalms, it's important to keep in mind these three principles as we look at the Psalter. The first one is that Psalms are truth. The Psalms are no different from any other parts of Scripture. They are God inspired. The Greek word is theonoustos. They are God breathed. They've been expelled from God. He has inspired his writers to write these to teach us and instruct us. The Psalms are a rich source of doctrine and they speak to our minds. The second thing is the Psalms are poems. Not only do they speak to our minds as poetry, but they also speak to our hearts. Reading the Psalms engages both the right and left brain, the intellect and the emotions, the thinking and the feeling. Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme, rhythm, or meter like our Western poetry. It wouldn't make sense in Western poetry. Instead, the main technique of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. So the key movements within a psalm are often from lo- one line to another, saying the same thing, but just with a slightly pu- uh, slant slightly put upon it, to say the same thing a bunch of different ways. And it's meant to turn and stir, sorry, stir our hearts and engage our minds. And the book of Psalms, thirdly, that I want you to remember throughout this 10-week series is that it is a book. More spe- specifically, it's five little books that make up one big book. So Psalm 1 to 41 is book 1. Psalm 42 to 72 is book 2. Psalm 73 to 89 is book 3. Psalm 90 to 106 is book 4. And then Psalm 107 to one hundred fifty is book 5 and each of these 5 little books is like a sec- is a section of the larger book and it's ba- and based on these 5 main sections there is a clear order a theme that runs through the entire Psalter. A lot of people argue there is no theme, but really careful attention shows you that the compilers of the Psalter were very intentional in what they were doing. These observations will help you personally interpret the psalms and apply them to your life as we follow through them the next few weeks. And lastly, before we get to our text today, this is sort of an introductionary sermon as well. Uh, You may be wondering, well, okay, the psalms are great, but how are they going to help me? Like, Pastor, I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling at my wits end. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to turn to. I feel like the sand is up on my neck and it's about to cover my mouth. What do I do? How are the Psalms going to help me? Well, the Psalms are helpful to us in ways that are different than other books in the Bible. I love the compelling narratives of the Old Testament, the wisdom of the Proverbs, the fire of the prophets, and I love the stories of Jesus and the gospel and the logic behind Paul's words and his letters, but there's something very special about the Psalms. So let me suggest just three brief things that make this unique and how these can help you. First, it's reverence. They give you a sense of reverence. The Psalms show us how to get an upward focus right. They help us to become what God made us to be, which is worshipers in all stages of life. It helps us to look to God and to honor God in and through it all. The second thing is relevance. The Psalms fit our lives very, very well. Through every situation in life, the psalms, that sp- they speak directly to us through emotions that are flooding our souls. It gives us the language of heaven to speak. And thirdly, reflection. The psalms help us to think about life, to think about the difficulties and the joys in a fresh way. I don't think that's a psalm. No, I'm just messing with you. (laughs) They help us deal honestly with real emotions. They help us turn back to where we need to be headed, right? Our pain and our suffering are not meant to be cul-de-sacs, which we live in, but they're meant to be bridges that bring us back to the who of God. Who is God? And the Psalms help us reflect upon that, and the who of God eventually begins to eclipse our pain and our sufferings. The questions of why might never stop, but the who of God is always greater. I don't understand why this is happening to me, God, but who you are, I know I can overcome. There are promises that you have promised me, and you are the sovereign Lord who can make them happen. Who is God? He is faithful, amen? The book connects us to God like few others, and that's why we love the Psalms so much, because the Psalms are real. They're honest. They're gutsy. They're glorious. They're awe-inspiring. They're beautiful songs about living our lives to the glory of God. So with that, let's read our text today, which I don't have on the the screen because I want you to be in your Bibles. (laughs) So Psalm 1, verse 1 says, blessed is the man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. These are some strong words. So although this is called Psalm 1, this is not the first psalm to ever be penned that would be Psalm 90, which was a psalm of Moses. But this psalm is placed at the beginning with Psalm 2 because its compilers looked at both of these psalms as the gatekeepers, as the doormen to the book of worship. You're introduced to some very speci- a very special person in these two psalms, which for Israel would be the coming Messiah, and for us is Jesus Christ. The themes that we will see In this thematic introduction of the psalm, we will see throughout the entire psalter, you'll pick up both, all the themes laid out in Psalm 1 throughout the entire psalter, and they'll be expanded upon throughout the entire book, and it creates an apt prelude for what we will find in the 149 psalms. Psalm 1 lays out God's prescribed way of life for the righteous, the readers who are us. And it asks this simple question, which way will you live? There are two paths in life, and they lead to very specific ends. Which way will you live? The psalm says there are two types of people in this world. There's there's two types of people. There's two types of paths. Those who have the favor of God upon them and those who do not. So in this introductory psalm, we see instructions. We see warnings for us, the people of God, but also... For those who are outside of Christ. And I want us to note three important elements of this psalm. The first is the favor of God. The very first word in this book, blessed, is an essential word. It's a loaded term. It's the Hebrew word that means happiness. It means bliss. It means joy or satisfaction. The idea, though, you don't want to have this wrong idea. It's not that the person is receiving a ton of blessings, that everything's going easy for them, that they always get that parking spot right by the doors at Walmart. No, that's not what it means to be blessed. Rather, it means the person has found what's really worth living for. They have found the essence of true living. And this kind of living leads to great joy in all of life. Deuteronomy 33, verse 20, and 1 Kings 10, 8 to 9, pick up on this idea of the blessed life, of the happy life. Let's read together. In Deuteronomy, it says, Happy are you, O Israel, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs." First Kings 10, 8-9 says, Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Therefore, blessed means that a person who has discovered what life is all about, what true happiness, where true happiness lies, and what the tr- what really it means to live, that person has found the sweet spot, meaning the the sweet spot of life, meaning what it means to truly be alive in Christ. They have found the favor of God. The second element I want you to see, after favor, is the two paths. That are put before us here. Because the favor of God involves being on the right path. And the psalmist sets a clear contrast and brings light to the remarkable differences between the two types of people, between the two paths that we are on the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. So let's read together. Psalm 1 again, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So let's start with the way of the wicked. The psalmist begins with the negative path, laying out for you what it means not to be blessed. And he does this by giving us three sets of three. And those three sets of three are walk, stand, sit, Uh, counsel, way, and seat, and wicked sinners, scoffers. Those are the three sets of threes. And here, right here in verse 1, is a great example of Hebrew poetry, their Hebrew parallelism, where they say the same thing, three different ways to really drill it into your heart and into your mind so it causes transformation. This passage is identifying that there are three aspects from departing from God's path which will then cause you to progress in sin, so let's examine those three paths, those three uh, sorry, departures from God's path. The first is oh oh sorry, I didn't put them on here, sorry. Uh, the first is walking in the counsel of the wicked. or this is embracing the wrong thinking. It will never be easy as a Christian to march outside of the beat of an insistent world. The world will always want you to march in line with what they're putting forward. We send our kids to Caesar in the public schools, and we wonder why they come out acting like Caesar. Because we expect the church to pick up all the tasks that is put on the responsibility of the parents to teach their kids about God. The the, the school systems, I'm not some some, uh, conspiracy theorist, but they are systems that train people to think like Caesar. Doesn't mean your kids can't go there, but you got to be working hard to be putting the word of God ingrained in them. It's never easy to walk outside of the beat of an insistent world, yet blessings come to those who do not conform, who do not march to the beat of the world, but march to the beat of Christ. The second thing is standing in the way of sinners. That's the second departure, or meaning to join in and identify with that crowd. You're becoming more like them. And lastly, it's inevitable at this point, this is how sin works, you sit in the seat of the scoffers, meaning you're adopting the sinful attitude. So what he is describing in these elements is is a world system, how the world works. And he's saying, listen, Here is the bad path. The bad path is filled with three things. Wrong thinking, the bad path is the wrong crowd, and it's the wrong attitude. Now, in contrast to this bad path, there is a right path that is remarkably different. And that is the path of the righteous. And the right path centers on the importance of God's word. This is why I think it's important that you have an open Bible uh, in front of you, be it digital or paper, have it in front of you. The righteous path is marked by, one, a right desire, and, two, a consistent commitment. The right desire leads to to right actions. Look at verse 2. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The person who is on the righteous path loves the word of God. And the word law there that you see is not just talking about the Ten Commandments. It's not talking just about the 613 Hebrew laws. What the word law means is the word of God in general. Anything that God has spoken is his law. And we should follow what he has spoken. So he's saying you meditate upon his Word. He expresses this love for God's Word, the blessed person, by lingering over it, by pondering over it, and by thinking about its application. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's a tall order. How is any of us going to do that perfectly? And and this is when I preached it three years ago. This is where we focused entirely on it. I didn't take it any further. But what this is talking about is Jesus. Jesus is the blessed person. Jesus is the only one who truly delights in God's law, who truly lives it out, and who truly applies it to his life. We can't do that. We can try our best, but we're going to fail, right? You know. You don't have to act all Christian just because you're sitting in these pews. I know your failures because I'm a failure at times too. I know I mess up. That's, That's the part of striving to be like Christ. And what this should do, and this is the focus we're going to take today now, is what does it mean that a perfect Savior has fulfilled this, and now how are we supposed to live in light of that? How are we supposed to live this out in our sanctification? Because there is application to it. You don't get more blessed, you don't get more loved by God, because that would defeat the purpose of God's grace. He came, lived the perfect life, so you don't have to. Doesn't mean you get a free pass to sin. Read the book of Romans but it means that you live unto God, but when you stumble, he doesn't kick you out of the family, amen? Because I wouldn't be standing before you today. There'd be a lot of weeping and gnashing of my teeth right now. Come on, you Bible people. You know what I'm saying. (laughs) The word meditate in the original Hebrew... It means more than just silent thought. It means more than just trying to clear out all your thoughts and become one with the universe. It conveys the idea of vocal and de- uh, de- uh, declarative speaking of God's teaching, and it comes from a conviction that what is spoken audibly from God's word comes from the innermost recesses of the heart. It's your innermost conviction. Here is a person who's not only talking the talk. They're not just saying things that they expect that a person would say, but he does so out of his deepest desire and delight of his heart. He's not just talking the talk, he's also walking the walk. The picture here is a person whose affections are remarkably different than those of the wicked, and because he is actively pursuing God's word. His joy in God's word leads, uh, sorry, his joy in God leads him to a joy in God's word. Because you love God, you're going to want to delight in his word. He joyfully pursues his word. How different is that than going, oh no, God's going to be angry at me because I forgot to read a verse today. That's not the God we serve. We serve a grace-filled God. The blessed person is happy because they know what it means to be right with God, to live in right relationship with a perfect Savior. Church, there is no long-term joy in sin. I'm not naive. I know there's lots of pleasure in sin. Don't hear me wrong. But there is no real long-term joy in sin. The only way you experience true and lasting joy is doing, the thing, doing things the way that God has intended. Being obedient to his word, being obedient to his leading and guiding. Church, God's ways work. They might not be popular for the world, but they work. It works for families, it works for your finances, it works for culture. God's way works for your heart. And there is nothing more beautiful, more glorious than knowing that my life is right with God. It's in right relationship with the creator of the universe. It also means that today... If you're just sitting here trying to figure out, why does my life feel so empty? Why does it feel so purposeless and shallow? The reality is that God has created in your heart a God-sized hole that only He can fill. Only He can fill. And without Him in that place, your life isn't complete. The the sin, the things that you do that are wrong, and you know that they're wrong lots of time, they violate the very essence of not only a holy God, but also your conscience that God has designed it to be that way. And so you walk in and you do these things that you know are wrong, but you think are going to fulfill you, you know they're out of bounds, but you have hopes that they're going to make you feel satisfied, they're going to fill this empty hole, and you find out in the end that it was all just a mirage. Lots of water promised, but when you got there, your mouth was full of sand. Church, that's half-hearted, shallow living. And that's what he's presenting to us here. But the other end of that perspective that we see is this beautiful, thriving metropolis of a relationship that God invites us into. And the New Testament clearly tells us that this has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he invites every single one of you here today into this relationship that is thriving, that is beautiful, that is a tropic in the midst of the desert. And he invites all of you in. And those who come, they are forgiven of their sins, and they're given new hearts, and they're told how to live in light of their calling. And that's what real life is. And some of you might be thinking, or maybe you've heard this from some of your unsaved friends or family, that man, Christianity is just so restrictive. It's all full of rules, it's all these do's and don'ts. But actually, the reverse is true. Don't, don't hear me wrong. I, I know what it was like to grow up in the 90s in the holiness movement of, you know, you can't even mention the word Harry Potter without getting a spanking. You know, like, don't, don't I, I understand there's a crazy part of Christianity that it's all rule based. But true living to God is actually the opposite of this restrictive view that the world often says Christianity is. Because you know what's really restrictive? Guilt. Guilt restricts you. You know what's really restrictive? Fear and doubt. But true freedom is only found in the grace of God. Forgiveness and wholeness that comes through Jesus. And that's what true living is. And that's the picture of what the psalmist gives us today. So therefore, he gives us two contrasting conditions. That's the third thing I want you to see. And he, and he does this by giving us a tree metaphor. The person whose delight is in God, he loves God's word, is like a tree that is planted by streams of water. I know we live on the prairies, so trees are a little weird to us. What are those things? But they exist, okay? But uh, verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. It's like a leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Notice that this blessed person is like a tree that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. Well, again, remember, this is clearly talking about Jesus But how does this apply to us? This doesn't mean that everything in our lives, when we delight in God's word, when we seek to be obedient to him, is going to go well for us, that there's going to be no hardships. If that was the case, we would have to be planting churches on every corner of the street because people would want that. But it means that in the midst of all circumstances of your life, you have roots that go deep down into God. I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody who is dying who was a believer, who was a saint. Some, like, it's not that there's pleasure in death, but when you sit with an elderly person who knows Christ and you can see that expectant look upon their face, you can't help but feel the joy they're going to see their Savior. That is way different than when you compare that to someone who doesn't know Christ. I've sat with both. And the fear that is on their face as they don't know what to expect as they cross over it's way different it's fear versus freedom whatever he does he prospers his roots go down no matter what happens in life no matter your job loss no matter your financial difficulties no matter your marital challenges challenges difficult circumstances in life he is like a tree That is, through every season in life, he knows his roots go down and they are deep and secure in Christ. Not because how tightly you hold to Jesus, but because how tightly Jesus holds to you. They found the spiritual rootedness that is discovered in the powerful reality of who God is, that he is a faithful God even when we are not. He has found the favor of God. And then the psalmist contrasts this tree with the life of the wicked. And with a blunt statement, the psalmist says, the wicked are not so, in verse 4. He says, the wicked are not so, but like chaff, that the wind drives away. Look at that contrast. They're not rooted. They don't have deep roots. They're not by streams of water. Instead of a tree that prospers, the wicked are compared to the part of corn that is thrown up in the air and is blown away by the wind. Or think about when you cut your lawn and there's those glass, or glass, grass clippings and they dry up. What happens? The wind blows them away. The Bible is using this imagery of the life of the wicked, that it is, it is weightless, that it's rootless, and that it'll be blown away. And maybe some of you are here and this is speaking about your life today. Maybe you're hearing this that's me. We live in a world, when we live in a world and not in Christ, our lives are rootless, they're weightless, they're flighty, they're light, and they're useless. And some of you are there in person or are you watching online? You have seen and experienced how fleeting the pleasures of sin really can be. You have seen it all blow away in your life time and time again. And you felt like you were spiritually lost at sea. And there's this nagging sense inside of your conscience that there must be more to life than this. This weighty living, weightless living, sorry, where it's just blowing to and fro. Psalm 1, hear me, offers you that other path today. There is another way to live. There is another way to live a life that is not lived for you or your own pursuits or pleasure. Instead, it's a life that is lived into the beauty of what it means to be in right relationship with your Creator. And this leads us to the result. Where is this all going? Where do both of these paths end up heading? Where do they lead? Well, look at verses 5 to 6, which says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will have no part in God's presence, both now and in the future. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat of the righteous. When he's talking about the judgment, he's speaking about the future judgment, the eternal judgment, the final judgment. That the wicked will not stand in that day, but will be blown away by the judgment of God. But then the psalmist also switches gears there and talks about the present. He says, nor the sinners... In the congregation of the righteous. Meaning for the wicked, even now, there's this awkwardness when you come in to a worship service. I don't know if I fit here. And that's not because anyone's making them feel that way. That's just because something's nagging. There's a spiritual war going on. And this should be a sign to them of things of what is to come if they do not repent. If they feel uncomfortable now, it's going to be way more uncomfortable in eternity. And then in verse 6, he says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, which means that the Lord is personally, hear this, involved in caring for, protecting, loving, and cherishing his own, which means you who are in Christ. He is your God, and you are his people, and that's what this psalm is saying. The psalms communicate to us time and time again that God has got you. He understands. He's not going to let you go. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what the devil throws at you, no matter how bad your life circumstances get, the Psalms are like an anchor for your soul that secure you to the sovereign Lord when you're on the right path. And you know what the beautiful thing is? Even when you're in sorrow, you can still be happy. There's no distinction between joy and happiness. I hate when preachers make that distinction. There's no distinction. Your joy is your happiness. Because you know that this is what real life is all about. And then it ends with this really blunt statement. The wicked will perish. But the psalmist is saying to us that there's two paths of life. And you know what's interesting? The psalmist wasn't the first one to lay out this two-path idea. Jesus Himself, in Matthew seventeen thirteen to fourteen, says, "Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy and leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." In other words, Jesus is saying there's two gates. There's the narrow gate, and few find it. And then there's this wide gate, which lots of people are going down that path. You know, that saying your mom always said, if everyone jumped off a bridge, would you do it? Jesus is saying, yes, you would. You're going to go down that wide path, because everyone's going down it. And here's the deal. Lots of people they are going down a path of half-hearted, shallow, pointless living. But Jesus says, on the other side of the fence, he says, look, I am that narrow gate. Those who come to me find forgiveness. And yes, it will be hard to admit you're a sinner. That's never easy. Yes, it will be hard to acknowledge that God has the right to dictate your life and how you live. But that's the way of true living. And not only eternal life is offered, but abundant life is offered right now as you live and breathe. And so the psalmist and Jesus would ask you this very, very simple question. Which path are you on? Today, you who are sitting here, which path do you find yourself on? Are you on the path that fits the beauty of what it means to know Christ as your Savior and to know the favor of God? Or are you on the other path that is full of listless, wandering chaff that is just blowing around? You, you, you attach to one thing, but it depending on what friend comes in your life or culture or environment or person or job or book or music that holds influence in your life, your heart is moved around over, 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 over all the place and it becomes entire, It, it becomes tiring. It's a treadmill. And my question is, aren't you sick of that? Aren't you ready to find rest? Aren't you tired of waking up and looking in the mirror it's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Who am I? What is this pointless life? And when will you wake up and say, I need Jesus to change me from the inside out. I need Jesus to transform me. And the Old Testament here is saying that this path, this is what you can go down. This is offered to you, a path that receives the joy and beauty and favor of God. And then in the New Testament, it says Jesus fulfills that. He says, I'm the gate. He's the one by which you enter in into this life. The path that experiences the beauty and joy of God is only found through His Son. And the question again, church, is what path are you on? Because there is one path that is half-hearted living and the other path is full of robust joy in what it means to be part of God's economy of goodness and grace. Psalms. It's a great book. It's going to be a good journey. But you have to start on the right path. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word that it is a lamp upon our feet, that it guides us, O Lord. Father, your truth is what we need. It's sometimes not easy to hear, but, God, it's what we need. And so my prayer for all of us, me included, me the first most, Lord, that you would put my eyes back on you, that you'd put our eyes back on you. Father, that as Peter, as he took his eyes off of you and put them on the waves, he sank. So, Father, as we're going through this life, help us to transfix our eyes on Christ, to stay on the path. Now, this isn't a straight path, Lord. It's lots of hills and dips and wanderings, Lord, but God, I pray that you're gracious to us on this journey. You've promised us in the New Testament, Lord, that your Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and it has strengthened us and empowered us to live the life that we were called to live. Father, we don't do these things. We don't read your word, delight in your word, meditate on your word, Lord, so that we're more blessed by you, that we're more accepted by you, or more loved by you. Father, we know that comes completely through Christ, that you showed us how much you loved us by sending your son to die for us. And Lord, would you impress that truth upon our hearts and our minds? And may we always remember that we are accepted and loved, and Father, you have called us to live specific parameters on this path. And may we delight in that. In Jesus' name.